Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Welcome back to the What Is Money Show. I am sitting down today with author Bob Murphy, who's written a great book called Choice, pictured here. And uh, this book, as I was just describing to Bob offline, I think is an excellent bridge between most people and the book Human Action, which is, I guess it is the, uh, the premier book of Austrian economics. Maybe, the, maybe Rothbard's Man, Economy, Estate is up there as well. Um, would you agree with that, Bob? Or is there? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly right. So the the three contenders among people who are associated with the Mises Institute, let's say, because there's different sort of wings in the Austrian mm-hmm. modern Austrian school. We can talk about that if you want to at some point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the group with whom I'm associated, yeah, it would be they would probably if they had to pick one. So yeah, Mises Human Action, which came out in 1949. Mm-hmm. Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, which I think is 62. It's in the early six. I think it's 62. Mm-hmm. Um, or they might say Carl Menger's Principles of Economics in 1871, which was like literally oh, right. the foundation of the Austrian school. Right. Um, so yeah, it would it would be one of those three. But but certainly in the modern Austrian school and what gives it its definition and whatnot. Yeah, Mises' Human Action is you know his magnum opus. It's it's got everything in there. So yes. that's one distinction. Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State is more narrowly an economic treatise, mm. whereas Mises kind of talks about all kinds of stuff, political philosophy, everything is in there. Yes. Yeah. It's very much a philosophical work, which I appreciate. Um, difficult to read, I, 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 I guess because it's translated from German and the way he handles English is unlike anyone I've ever read before. It's just very dense. Um, but very, he doesn't doesn't mince words. It seems to be very packed with with meaning. Um, so it's an excellent. Yeah, so book. if I could just comment on that. So my understanding is you're right. So it was he originally wrote his treatise National Economy. You know, with mm-hmm. the, the dots over the O's and stuff, the way mm-hmm. they do in German. But human action, my understanding, it wasn't a translation person like Mises did sit down and write that from scratch in mm-hmm. English okay. using National Economy as a guide. But you're right. Like it's it's very Germanic in its you know the sentences are real long. He 
to use is very, uh, you know, instead of just saying this term is redundant, he'll say this, this term is pleonastic. So yes. it's like <laughs> English is not by any stretch his first language, and yet he has a huge vocabulary. So um, you're right. And beyond that, it's not just that the language is difficult, but Mises assumes he's writing for a Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. Then he just makes offhand remarks about quantum physics and, you know, Goethe and, and Plato yes. and Roman history as if everybody knows all that stuff. Yes. And, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely presupposes a very wide and deep basis of knowledge. Um, but it's great. I mean, I read it on a Kindle and I found myself defining a lot of terms, you know, just mm-hmm. like, like you, like you just referred to. So it's really a, a mind expanding book, but it, but because it's written that way, it's largely inaccessible to a lot of audiences. And that's why I think your book has done an amazing job of distilling these concepts down into something that's um, more accessible for, for a broader audience. So, well, well, thank you for saying that. And yeah. just for the benefit of your uh, viewers, that's literally what I was commissioned to do, right? So yeah. that, that was the function of my book choice yes. was they, they literally told me, write something that's, you know, 300, 350 pages that takes every, you know, the, the most important stuff in human action and distills it down so it could be plausibly assigned to an undergrad college class. Yes. And they would, and they would get it. And so that, that's what my mission was. And you and lots of other people have said that, yeah, he, yeah, I, that's what we, that's what I did in that. So I was glad to see that apparently I pulled that off. Yeah. Well, you're the man for the job because it's a mission accomplished uh, and well done. And I found it especially um, enjoyable after reading human action, actually, because you read that book and you're left kind of your head hurts a little bit, you know, you've learned a lot, but it's, there's still, I still read, I was rereading parts of it recently. Um, I always find new insights in there. So there's, it's just mm-hmm. so packed. You can't get it all in one pass, but going through your book after the fact was, it helped open it up for me as well. So it's, I think they complement one another really well. Um, well, yeah, thanks for saying that. And also, yeah, I should stress that it's, you know, I don't, I don't want my book to be a substitute for it. You know, ideally it'll unlock human action, you know, introduce it and some people might go on to, to read it, but, but yes, at, at the same time being practical, we know not everyone's going to sit down and read a 900 page economics treatise. And so, yeah. you know, <laughs> my, my book might give those insights to, to people that otherwise wouldn't have gotten it. Yes. It's a very serious undertaking. I think I spent six months reading it very seriously every day to get through it. Um, so maybe we could start here. Um, I think a, the, a general consensus among Austrian economists is that what we call, what most people call economics or economic science in the world today is anything but. You know, we, we have been, I don't know if you want to use the word indoctrinated or just uh we've gone astray from the axioms or the first principles of economics. And we've got into this more, uh, this scientific, uh, let's use the term scientism version Mm -hmm. of economics, uh, that most people refer to as Keynesianism. My Mises, and I think this is in the opening group as well. Mises describes economics as the youngest of all sciences. So I think that's a really important way to look at it, that we're, we're actually dealing with something that's kind of emergent in a lot of ways. Our understanding of this science is, is very young and, and new. So maybe we could start with that, just how this emergent science we call economics differs 
from logic, math, psychology, physics, biology, and how it also differs from what many of us uh, are told is economic science today. So I guess maybe drawing the distinction between Austrian and Keynesian economics and also how uh, economics as a science differs from all of these other mainstream scientific disciplines. Okay, sure. So great questions. Um, I'll say some stuff and then in the interest of keeping out a conversation, I'll cut myself short and then tell me if you want me to elaborate on, any, on these stubs. Uh, so, right, historically, there was, you know, markets existed before people studied them, you know, mm -hmm. and, then, and then people did start noticing certain patterns or regularities in market phenomena mm -hmm. and, you know, and then patterns in the prices and how they moved. And then, you know, the, the ruler would debase the coinage and then these were the effects and things like this. They'd have price controls and these would be the effects. So various writers, you know, you can go back, Aristotle wrote, wrote on economic topics and of course mm -hmm. the middle ages and lots of uh, church scholars and so forth. Uh, and so what Mises said though, is it says in human action that, yeah, that economics, th this study of the market economy be start eventually became its own discipline and people realized that it wasn't math. It wasn't history, mm -hmm. you know, it also, you know, wasn't, it wasn't a natural science. It wasn't like chemistry or physics. And so it was its own thing and eventually called economics, but it, it in Mises view, it, it had a particular um, method that should go along with it. Like the way you deduce laws of economics um, was, a, was according to a certain way. And that people, what ended up happening in the 20th century with the success of the physicists in particular, you know, like mm -hmm. it was, you know, 1930s, 1940s, especially mm -hmm. the atomic bomb, the, the physicists seemed like they were the smartest guys in the room and actually right. they probably were. Yeah. And so the economists thought, oh, to be rigorous, to really be a science, we have to adopt the methods that they use in the natural or physical sciences. Mm -hmm. Namely, you come up with hypotheses that have testable implications. You say, okay, if my theory were true, this is what experiments or observations would yield. And then you go run the experiment or you conduct the observations and you, you see, is it right or not? And if it's right, okay, you, you know, withhold judgment. But if your theory is wrong, if it's falsified, then you know it can't be you know, right and you, you toss it out. Right. And so, and, and Mises argued that, that, for one thing, that's actually a crude description of what even happens in like physics or something that's actually not really the way they do it in practice. But put that aside, he's saying with, with economics, it's, it's more akin to geometry in the sense mm. that um, what you do in economics is you, you start from the action axiom, the idea of the insight that people act, they, they use means to achieve subjective ends. And then you can logically deduce a lot of things from that mm -hmm. stuff. Like every choice has an, an opportunity cost. There are trade-offs, mm -hmm. um, decisions are made on the margin, you know, things like that. We can mm -hmm. elaborate on those if you want. Mm -hmm. And then that's how you come up with theorems in economics. So Mises uses that term. Lots of economists, you know, use theories, use the term theory, but Mises actually calls them theorems. Mm -hmm. And that's because in math, that's what you do. You prove a theorem. So right. just I'll, I'll end with this, just if, so your viewers, in case they've never heard this before, it, it might sound like, oh, so this is just like dogma. This is like theology or something. And you guys are just arguing. Well, well no, think about geometry again is the, is the analogy. When your teacher in, in school shows you the Pythagorean theorem, 
to say, you know, if you have a right triangle, the sum of the squares mm-hmm. of the two sides equals the square of the hypotenuse. You, if you, if a student said, well, how do we know that's true? The teacher would say, well, there's various proofs and here, you know, go on Wikipedia and look at, there's lots of ways to prove that. Right. And it wouldn't be go take out a ruler and a compass and go measure a thousand triangles and see if you can come up with a counterexample. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just not, and if, if the teacher did say that, they would be doing a disservice to the students because then the students would have the wrong idea of how you establish truth in geometry, right? right? They, would, they would think it's, it's an empirical science when it's not. Yes. So that's what Mises thought like basic economic law is. And I'll just say one last thing to avoid confusing people or, or misleading them. Mises was not against collecting data f- for economic topics. He actually w- helped found a center to study business cycles that Hayek you know, that was one of his early positions yes. when Hayek was, was up and coming. So it's not that Mises said, oh, no, I don't want to look at numbers. Don't, yeah, don't yeah. trouble me with facts. But he was just saying the framework that you use to parse the data, you know, the basic economic principles or laws, that's something you logically deduce to help you then go make sense of the world. Right, right, right. So there's this division between, I guess, economics and economic history, where economics is establishing these theorems, again, deduced from an axiom, right? Man must mm. act, for instance. Mm. And then you're using that those de- uh, theorems deduced to an- interpret historical events or historical data. Is that a- yeah, somewhat accurate? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's true. And you're right. Economic history you know, would say, oh, what happened in the 70s? And all oh, crude oil prices did this and you mm-hmm. know, blah, blah, blah. blah. And, Yes, you can you can have a bunch of data and historical facts that you collect, but 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 right, the actual determination of economic laws, that's something that you use through deduction or introspection. Yes. And then, so, and then you can go apply them to historical events. So, you know, if, if you're trying to understand, oh, Diocletian put in place price controls, and then all of a sudden there were shortages, mm-hmm. you know, we can look at the historical data and, and you know look at somebody's diary or whatever to mm-hmm. understand what happened. But to know that price controls cause shortage, or if they're a ceiling, cause a, a shortage, that's something you would deduce logically. That's not merely, oh, because we looked at all the instances of price controls in history and there was a 97.3% probability. You know, that's not right. Right, right, right. Yeah. That, and, and I think that's kind of the important point to hold on to there is um, I, I love the analogy to Euclidean geometry. Because it's similar, right? It's reason mm-hmm. from I think there's five Euclidean axioms, and then he, you know, produces the whole um, uh, framework of, of Euclidean geometry. One of them being like uh, I think one of them is two parallel lines never intersect. It's if you were to try to go out into the world and test that, I mean, what how, what would you you test every set of parallel lines in the universe before you could actually prove it? it just doesn't make sense. So it's almost like you you get this um, axiom to depend on, and then uh, up, take the observations of the world and map it to that. Um, whereas, yeah, it, it, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, whereas Keynesian economics is more like the physics envy you described earlier, where everything mm-hmm. needs to be measured, and they want to go out and test all the parallel lines in the universe uh, and describe that they never intersect. Is that R- roughly the, the difference there. So yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with what you just said. I'll let me take your examples and try to like say it in 
slightly different word just to make sure the mm -hmm, viewers please. you know are getting so and also i want to because what i debated david friedman once on this stuff at, at pork fest one year and he was bringing up the you know stuff with and he was sort of like oh, i'm putting more i'm paraphrasing what he said but it's sort of like oh i'm surprised dr murphy would say this because he should know that you know in physics actually we we believe that the the universe the real world you know space-time continuum is not um euclidean in mm -hmm. fact you know because space is curved and so like right, right. on a on a globe parallel lines actually do intersect with north and south pole yeah, right yeah, yeah. and so if because it's curved right yeah but that doesn't disprove you it's not that euclidean geometry is wrong it's not that aha pythagoras is right. wrong yeah. his alleged theorem there's a mistake yes. no the way you would deal with that is like you say you would go back to the the axioms in euclidean geometry and say these apparently according to our observations right. are actually not true in our physical universe you yes. know the material universe in which we live and so that's why these conclusions don't hold um and so but it's it's still if you wanted to prove the pythagorean theorem in a geometry class you still prove it the standard way you, know, you start with the axioms and you step by step deduce it right and you again you'd be doing a disservice if you said to your students go test you know to see if the, if the theorem is true yes. um so so yeah that's so when it comes to uh economics right that's the way you go ahead and do it and it's um maybe a, a better or a good example of this is if people have talked about or thought about free trade and the issue of like can putting in place tariffs create jobs and, and you know make our country wealthier by keeping out cheap imports and there's lots of thought experiments that you know economists have done over the years like oh imagine a, two countries and there's two goods and, da, 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 and comparative mm -hmm. advantage or bastiat's famous petition of the candle makers it's a satirical um letter that he's he's pretending to be representing the candle makers of france and they're petitioning the parliament to pass a resolution that all the shutters have to be closed in France during the day to keep out the unfair competition from the sun. Mm, and so okay. if we keep out all the sunlight, people will have to buy more candles, you know, to provide indoor lighting. Yeah. And then they just go through and look at all the jobs that would create, you know, because we would <laughs> yeah. sell more candles, we'd have to hire more. And clearly that's crazy, right? Yes. And so then the point is when you stop and, and put your finger on, well, why is that crazy? Then you realize, okay, if it's dumb to keep out the free, import of sunlight well then also if england is sending us wool that's cheaper than we can make domestically in france right. it would likewise be dumb to keep that out in order to provide jobs for our you know people in husbandry yes. so so my my point though is there it's like thinking through the logic of it and once you see that insight and realize the fallacies of protectionism then you're a free trader right um, yes and 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 it's not that you you didn't get there by running a bunch of regressions and saying right. ah, ah when tariff barriers were lowered it looks like you know a, with a you know confidence of five percent or blah 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 you know yes, that's yes. that's not the way you, you do it and so and, I, and so I think it's even a lot of economists who don't call themselves Austrians and and think that they're doing the so-called scientific method in practice the reason they believe in free trade. Is because of like reading an essay like Bastiat's or or you know working through a simple a very unrealistic simple example with numbers of like, like I said two countries and two goods and like once you see the logic of comparative advantage you can't unsee it yeah it's like oh my gosh there it is right there so th that's kind of where the Austrians are coming from they're saying just don't be ashamed of that like embrace it in economics that is how we gain insight that's where our bedrock principles come from yeah uh, I'll give it another example of this the textbook that I used 
in undergrad to teach, um, you know, economic principles. In the beginning, the first chapter, it said how to think like an economist, and it had a bunch of principles. And it was stuff like, you know, there's always scarcity, there's always trade-offs, every choice has an opportunity cost, things like mm -hmm. that. People make decisions on the market. And then one of them was to be scientific, economic theories have to be testable. And so mm -hmm. I was saying to the class why I said, yeah, I like all these other ones. This one, I think they just threw in there. And actually, I don't agree with that, but you know, it's in the books. So let me just talk about blah, blah, blah. Right. And one of my students had a great insight and he raised his hand. And he said, and also notice that all those other principles about how to think like an economist are not testable. And he was he was right. And that was a yeah, good yeah, yeah, yeah. because like to just to, so in case your viewers don't get what I'm, the point, yeah. like to say, um, well, one of the principles was people respond to incentives, mm -hmm. and that's actually not testable because look, I could say Robert, I'll give you um, you know a satoshi if you chop off your left arm, mm -hmm. and you'll say no thanks. Did mm -hmm. I just falsify the claim that people respond to incentives? No, I would just <laughs> say oh the incentive wasn't high enough. Yeah, right. right. So. So that's the thing. It's to say people respond to incentives, and that's how economists think. Really, what you're just saying is economists have decided that's how we're going to view the world. Yes. That's the framework or the lens we're going to use. You actually don't go test, like you don't test some. Do, does supply and demand exist? Like right. no, that's just a category, a concept we're going to use to go look at the world. So right. maybe in some settings it's not helpful. You know, sometimes people like analyze the dating market using economics. And that kind of creeps me out. <laughs> but it, it's not that it's false or true. The way you could say, you know, is uh, you know, the certain interpretations of quantum physics is that true or false? You'd say, well, mm -hmm. I don't know. Let's go run the experiment. Right. But I'm saying a lot of the stuff in economics, it's more a framework that you're using. And so the Keynesians and even just regular what we call neoclassicals that aren't necessarily Keynesian, I think they're fooling themselves. They think they're being real rigorous, but actually they're you know, for one thing, they can't predict as well as the quantum physicists can, right? Like the, right. what's going to happen in a two slit experiment or something, they know very well, even though it's mm -hmm. kind of crazy, it doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. the words they use to describe what's going on, yeah. but the predictions are borne out. Whereas in economics right now, you know, mainstream economics, they have no clue what GDP is going to be next quarter. Right. So on their own terms, they're not very scientific or the, yes. the economic science is not very good. Yes. Yes. So that, that's a really important point that there are, I guess you'd say there's no constants in human action, which distinguishes it from something like physics, where we know water is going to freeze at zero degrees Celsius every time and everywhere mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, intents and purposes. Um, and the other thing is you can't isolate variables in economics, where we talk about running the experiment, you can control certain variables, test others. You can't do that in an economic setting because it's, you know, I, not controllable. So the uh, the un the fact that you can't control for any of the variables means that you can't isolate them. So you cannot um, establish uh, you can't test these axioms. So you're, you're creating like an axiomatic framing almost. So they're presuppositions through which you decide to view the world, and then you can look at economic history to see if they fit the data. So the free trade example you gave, you could then look at the Hong Kong miracle or whatever it was and say, oh, this is an example of free trade. We had low and predictable taxes. We had a lot of trade. The city exploded in wealth, right? That would be related to this, this free trade axiom. Um, and this is tricky because I don't think there's, I mean, that's why the geometry example is so useful. I think that's one of the few examples 
that we are familiar with of this way of mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe logic to some extent, logic's deductive as well, but uh, most people aren't super familiar with uh, with that type of training. Um, maybe we could proceed now to another term. I'll just have you define this and we can talk about it a little bit. This is one I had never even heard of before reading Human Action. Uh, praxeology. What what is this term? Uh, did Mises originate this term, and how? What is the proper way to to think about how it fits into? I guess whether to say how economics fits into praxeology. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So the the term itself, I think the best direct definition of it would be the science of human action. Mm. Okay. And so, and it's like in terms of the etymology, like the, the term praxis, I think means action. And so, you know, ology is the study of, you know, like geology is the study of the earth and, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So theology is study of theism, God. Mm -hmm. So um, praxeology is the, the scientific or just this, you know, the formal study of action per se. And so, um, so the way Mises explains what happened is he said, you know, originally the, the what we call the classical economists, people like uh, David Ricardo and Adam Smith um, and Karl Marx, th they had a, a labor or a cost theory of value. And so the way they explained market prices was by like, oh, the reason that stagecoach trades for this many bushels of wheat in the marketplace, you know, they have comparable mm -hmm. market values is because the amount of labor power that goes into producing that many bushels of wheat is also the same amount of labor power that goes into the right. you know stagecoach so that was the way they thought about it. and there is a certain logic to that that mm -hmm. in certain settings especially for reproducible goods and if you're talking about the long run mm -hmm. average price that that you know that is yeah. that tends to be true um but you can come up with all sorts of counter examples you know you're just wandering in the woods and you find some stagecoach that was there and you have no idea how many hours went into it. When you take yeah. it into market, you're going to be able to sell it and you're not going to give it away for free. Right. right? And people aren't going to say, well, how can we price this thing? Because we don't know its history. No, people can evaluate it. And, and so, um, so that was the, what's called the subjective marginal revolution that occurred mm -hmm. in the 1870s where three independent people came up with it. One of whom was Carl Menger. In, in, mm -hmm. in the book that's you know now labeled the founding of the Austrian school. So what they replaced that old classical cost or labor theory of value with the modern subjective marginal utility approach that said ultimately value is a subjective thing. It's in the mind of the beholder. Mm -hmm. And then you know once you understand why how consumers value a bottle of wine, then you can understand why the grapes get value because you use grapes to make the wine. And, and so mm -hmm. like it, it reversed the causality instead of the inputs giving value to the mm -hmm. output it's the other way around that subjective utility explains yeah. the consumer goods and then that works the other way to explain the prices of the inputs that make right them. right right so mises says that this wasn't just a mere you know change in the technique for explaining market prices that once you brought open you know once you had to use subjective valuation for this sort of mundane task of just explaining market prices mm. that kind of opened up a whole new field. Like it didn't just stop there mm. because then you realize the way you formally or scientifically, if you will, talk about how people value goods in the marketplace in order to understand the marginal utility 
and and oh, why is it that three apples end up trading for two oranges? Mm-hmm. The the techniques or the um, the methods you would use to explain that doesn't just stop for economic things. Mm-hmm. You know, once you have to explain human action in a market setting, then now you've actually the the, the tools you've developed explain just human action per se. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Mises says really this founded this new field of praxeology the formal or scientific study of action per se. Mm-hmm. And then one subset in praxeology is what he called catalactics or the science of exchanges. So it's like a, a so a sub, so human action is just any purpose of behavior. When you, right. you know, rationally use means to achieve an end, that's action in the, in the Misesian sense of that term. Yeah. And then a subset of that is, you know, market action. Right. So distinct. So human action is distinguished from reflexive action. Where I think the example you give is when the doctor hits your knee with a little hammer and you, your leg kicks out. That's not purposive pursuit of you know means towards ends. So that would be that's act technically in the the Mises sense, not human action. Right? It's just reflexive. Right. And the only quibble I would have is you said reflexive action. He wouldn't use the term action. So he would just say oh. it's reflexive behavior. Reflexive so behavior. So it's, you know, you're, yeah. Gotcha. So you're, it's human behavior, like your body yes. is doing stuff. But right. yeah, when, when the doctor hits your kneecap and your leg goes up, that's, that's not action. Right. If the doctor insults you and you raise your leg to kick them, that's action. Yes. yes. Um, so it's almost as if the uh, human beings were, looking out upon the world and assigning different things as means towards ends, right? We're trying to to utilize nature or relationships, anything we can um, control or affect or influence. Uh, we're trying to use those to achieve ends. And that is the, that is praxeology broader. And then the economic subset of that would just be when we're actually using exchange to achieve ends, is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty. That's pretty good. Um, so again, I'll just say it in different words. Mm-hmm. Um, so right, the praxeology is you're you're adopting this stance of interpreting certain observations, things you're seeing in the world. You're look. You're assuming that there is a conscious mind at work. Right. So um, if, if someone takes a rock and throws it and, you know, and it goes in a roughly a parabola, like there's air friction and stuff, but, mm-hmm. you know, it goes up and it comes down. We don't say, oh, the rock originally wanted to get away from the ground, but then changed its mind. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> we just don't talk like that. Right. Yeah. That's not the way we we describe things now, you know, in terms of the material world that would be considered unscientific. Yeah. But if we see a plane take off and it goes up and then it turns around and comes back down. You might say, oh, the pilot wanted to, to leave, but then yeah. forgot, you know, some important bit of luggage and so changed his mind and landed. Yes. That's not unscientific to talk like that. And in fact, right. that's a very good explanation for what the heck just happened. Right. Right. So we assume there's a conscious mind at work that has goals yes. and is using a means to achieve. Or you see somebody or that, you know, you see this. And you try to explain what just happened, and you'll say, Oh. Uh, apparently Bob was thirsty or, you know, whatever right. he needed a jolt of caffeine. And so he took a swift. <laughs> and, and so th- if you think about it, if you unpack that, there's actually a lot built into that. Yes. That you assume I have goals right. and you're assuming 
that I believe drinking that liquid will help quench it. You see what I mean? So yes. it's, it's actually pretty sophisticated. And that's what I mean, that just the concept of human action itself actually has embedded in it all sorts of implications if you just think through them. Right. You also said, oh, I, I must have decided the benefits of drinking that outweighed the costs. Yes. You know, there's lots of like economic things that are yes. packed into just your decision to interpret what I just did as, as action. Yes. If, if I'm sitting here and the ceiling caves in and takes me out, you would, you would just say, oh, there was an earthquake. Or, you know what I mean? You wouldn't say, right. oh, Bob decided that he wanted the ceiling to cave in on his head. or You know what I mean? Like, it's right. not the way you would talk. Or you wouldn't say the ceiling decided that it had had enough of this conversation and the interview was over. You wouldn't talk <laughs> like that because you wouldn't assume there was a – you see what I mean? So yes. I'm saying it's – the reason I'm dwelling on it is because we, we do it so casually and automatically in everyday life that we sort of take it for granted. Right. But Mises, you know, was stressing that. And then like you were saying that once you have that stance, then things, physical things in the real world become imbued with our motives. So like this yes, yes, thing yes. right here, yes. you might say, oh, that's a writing instrument. But yeah. if I took it and stabbed somebody in the neck with it, it becomes yeah. a weapon. Right. It's the same exactly. physical thing. It's just, yes. but if I'm walking and I just trip and happen to accidentally it's yeah. not so much that it was a weapon that was, no, it was a pen, a writing instrument is a freak accident. So yes. like my intention changes how we classify this exactly. physical thing. So there's lots yeah. of stuff like that, that again, a lot of economists who don't subscribe to the Austrian approach are like, well, this is just silly word games. This is whatever you're, you know, the college kids doing bong hits and they sit around and pontificate. <laughs> but other people think, no, this is really deep stuff. And let's really think about what we're doing before we yes. jump into the economics. Yeah, the way I like to describe it to some people is that it's it sort of shatters the materialist viewpoint on reality, where we just think things are intrinsically what they are, when in mm -hmm. fact it's the these cross currents of intentionality from conscious actors that are transforming things, right? Like this table that's holding my computer is an accessory to me, but if I pay someone to jump over it, then it becomes an obstacle to them, right. you know. And things right. are constantly right. transforming based on. Uh, this confluence of different market actor aims. I don't, I don't know if you would say just market actor, just conscious actor aims. And um, it's interesting. Yeah. There's almost like this, this lattice overlaid on the world that we don't see It kind of gets into Bastiat's seen and unseen, or may, I, maybe he's actually repurposed that from someone else, but there's this, and I think this makes economics so difficult to understand is that it's an unseen territory right where he gives the example of you know the broken window oh you go and break the window you've created a job for a, a glazier to come and fix the new window the economy's been improved that's what you see but the unseen is the guy that had to pay for the broken window the suit he would have bought had he not had to fix the window um so it's very interesting it's almost like this invisible i think of it if you're in like the casino and you're sitting around a table, like there's not a lot of actual uh, events happening. You know, it's just a few little pieces of paper and cards and chips mm -hmm. moving around, but there's this very powerful, silent contention of willpower at the table where people are trying to figure mm -hmm. out one another's moves. And that's kind of like a microcosm of what the market economy is at a larger scale. Um, so that gets maybe into teleology in a bit. Is that what so praxeology, the study of action, is then uh, observing the output of teleology. Is that the way to think about it properly? If right, so yeah, teleology is um, 
like ascribing purpose or intention to something yeah. and like the, the, this, this formal study of that. So, right. So you wouldn't have, so for example, like where people often try to discourage that is in biology, right? When you're talking about evolution and, and mm. students learn that, you know, it, they, they often slip and say things, you know, like, Oh, and the creature evolved, um, you know, because they, they wanted to be able to climb the mountain better. So that's why they evolved, you know, and, mm. It is sometimes, you know, the professor will say, no, 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 it's not that evolution has any goal, you know, mm. it's just blah, 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 you know, so that's, um, and so, but yes, in economics and certainly praxeology, that's, you know, job number one, that that's the literally the foundation of praxeology is that when you say, you know, the, the, the action, the action axiom to say that there is human action and that's where we're starting from, you are that term action, like I said, to distinguish it from reflexive behavior mm -hmm. means there is a mind at work. Or if you want to be more uh, modest in the claim to say, we are going to proceed as if there's a mind at work. Cause I guess mm. technically we don't know. Right. Right. right we could right. be in the matrix. Although that yeah. begs the question, you know, well, then yeah. who designed the matrix, but yeah. <laughs> right. So it certainly seems like to us. And then that's, what's neat too, about this. It kind of circles back to the empirical thing. If you say, you know, why is it, like what, wh why, what's the benefit? Why, why do you use praxeology? You would say, well, cause this gives us better results. I can navigate the world better. If I adopt the working hypothesis that, that there are other minds at work, right. at least in things that look like me, like I don't necessarily need to think that that building is alive yes, or that, or that the sun is alive. But yes. you know, if I be these other, you know, bags of protein and whatever <laughs> they're walking around in water that that's that I ascribe Oh, an ego to that thing and it has goals and whatever. And you know, that, that just helps me achieve what I want to do better than if I literally thought I was the only mind on earth. Like I yeah. you just would not, you wouldn't get, you wouldn't achieve your own ends as well as effectively if you actually were uh, a soul obsessed. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And that's, I don't want to say provable, but it's obvious if you treat someone that way, if you treat someone like they have no mind or no agency or no sovereignty, you just say, you know, you're this, you're that, do this, do that. Like people, we, we resent that. We hate that. So um, it's kind of like uh, probably similar to a useful fiction in a way where it's like you always treat every gun as if it's loaded. It doesn't mean that you actually... Mm -hmm. You don't even need to know whether the gun is loaded or not, but you should always treat it that way as a, a useful way of being. And the same way you should treat everyone as if they are a conscious agent. It's kind of a useful way of being. Right. And it, and to make sure people aren't missed. So it's, you know, because you were talking about sovereignty and stuff, but even like if you said like, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I go and kidnap people and keep them in my basement and whatever, because I'm a sick sadistic guy mm -hmm. but i say to him things like you know i'll feed you or whatever but if i ever hear anybody screaming then i'm going to shoot you in the kneecaps the mere fact that i'm threatening them shows that i think they have minds and they have goals right. and i think mm -hmm. i bet you they don't want to have extreme pain so even yes. there i am using praxeology you know i'm violating property rights and natural yes. law and all sorts of you know christian ethics but but yeah, the point yeah. being even there if you start bargaining or threatening people you are treating them as if they have goals themselves and they have reason, right? You know, it's, it's sort of like you, you were mentioning, we both have kids that when they're real young and they're screaming or whatever, you can't even bargain with them. Like I, you want them to get old enough. So maybe you can bribe them <laughs> if you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you don't even have the option of saying, I'll give you this candy bar if you shut up, yes. if, they're, if they don't understand language, you know? Yeah. 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 So. That's interesting. I never thought about it from that direction, but you, 
yeah, to be competent or effective in the world, you have to make that presupposition in both instances, good or, good or bad scenario. Right. And, and also too, even people who pretend like, you know, like a, like an extreme behaviorist, you know, BF Skinner and the people in that school, yeah. I guarantee you they didn't go through life not thinking, you know what I mean? Like they right. knew, I'm sure when they left the office and then went, you know, they, they behaved normally. Just like, this isn't the exact same example, but people would say stuff like, I'm sure you've heard this, that, um, oh, uh, because we ultimately know people really don't have free will, they've just been conditioned and, you know, they don't choose. That's why it would be inhumane to, to lock them up for committing a crime. Uh-huh. And then, but they're not being consistent. So, okay, well, I've been conditioned to lock people up when they murder someone. Right. So it's silly for you to, to use words on me and try to convince me and appeal to my sense of, I have no free will. I, I have no choice but to vote for a politician who wants to lock them up. Yeah. So you see what I mean? Even yeah. there, they're applying it just in one little area and then trying to talk to us and persuade us because they're treating us like we have free will in right, this conversation. Right. It's so. not consistent. Oh, right. That's interesting. Wow. Um, so that maybe gets into this domain of preferences. I guess so you have these uh, varying purposes or intentions being expressed through human action, often in the marketplace. Uh, the, and this is closely related to value. So I guess you could talk about either if you like, but um, my understanding is that essentially all human action is an expression of value or preference and that we have this kind of rank ordered uh, list of next actions to take and whatever we're doing in that moment, we're expressing the preference for that action over all other uh, options. But this was a this was kind of a breakthrough in the economic science where we figured out value was ordinal, and this got us past the cardinal value of uh, was it utility? I believe that they they thought in terms of prior to that. I might be messing some of this up, but maybe you could just speak to the ordinal versus cardinal sure. references and value. Yeah. So every, everything you said is is correct. So you didn't you didn't mess anything up. But yeah, just to elaborate on that so um originally like aristotle going back that far when they were again trying to explain market value you know why, why is it that goods possess different quantities of value in the marketplace why is it that you know a bushel of wheat trades for so many bushels of something else or whatever mm-hmm. and um and he so aristotle thought there must be something equal in both things, right? That again, the stagecoach mm-hmm. trades are so many bushels of wheat. They're, the fact that they trade means they have equal market value in, in that moment. You know, the, the things being swapped have equal, equal market value. And right. so there must be something in them. So it's obviously not like the number of wheels mm-hmm. or the, you know, the number of uh, fibers or something, because those are different. Mm-hmm. But, and so that's, and, and that really, and, but that was wrong. Or, or these, that was a that was a dead end. There, there wasn't very productive because that that really couldn't explain too much. And so again, the fundamental insight in the 1870s marginal revolution was to say actually, when there's a trade, it doesn't show equality. It shows an inequality of subjective value. Mm-hmm. That the person who gives up the stagecoach for the wheat values the wheat on the margin, those units of wheat, more mm-hmm. than that particular unit of stagecoach and mm-hmm. vice versa. The other person valued the stagecoach more. Mm-hmm. So actually there isn't, there's an equality in the market valuation, but in terms of what's explaining that and driving that tr- exchange, 
there's an inequality in the subjective valuations. Mm-hmm. And because it's a subjective thing, there's no contradiction. So another way of putting it is both parties could walk away thinking they got the more valuable item. Right. That's not it. Whereas they can't both walk away getting the more the more massive item or the item, right. you know, that has the most iron in it or something. Yeah, that's yeah. one would have to be wrong, right? Because that's an objective feature of the object. Yes. And they can't they can't both be more massive than the other. Okay, but they could both be more valuable if you're allowing there to be different minds at work. So that's mm-hmm. the the fundamental um, insight. And so then early, like even the even you see it in Menger and Bumbavrk, who's like the, the second generation Austrians, they thought that that subjective valuation was this measurable quantity of like happiness or utility or satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And that's how, kind of how they would explain it. Like, oh, so, the, you know, the reason the stagecoach trades for 10 bushels of wheat is that, you know, the stagecoach has 100 utils and each bushel of wheat has 10 utils. And that's why, you know, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and then it was later, though, that economists realized you could explain everything just by having what's called ordinal rankings. So you didn't need to assign a cardinal number. And I'll, and I'll explain a second, those terms, yeah. but it was more just, you need to rank things like first, second best, third best, fourth best. And if you could just do things like that, you could explain everything we need to in, in economics. You didn't have to say the first orange gives me 87 utils. The second orange gives mm-hmm. me 80 utils and so on. You didn't have to talk like that. You could just say the, you know, you could rank stuff. Yeah. Um, so an analogy I use to try to get it because it does sound cumbersome at first mm-hmm. is like with friendship. And so say, it makes sense to say, who's your best friend? Oh, Jim's my best. Who's your second best friend? Mary, who's my third mm-hmm. best friend, Sally. But you wouldn't say <laughs> how much more of a friend is Jim than Mary? Is he, is he like 60% more of a friend? You know, like quantify the friendship <laughs> right. units you have that you might say, that, no, that doesn't really make sense, but it does make sense to say Jim is a better friend than Mary. Right. Yes. And so I'm saying in economics, they realized like, in the early 1900s, I think that everything they do in consumer theory and all the you know the stuff, the way we explain market prices and everything using this cardinal notion of utility, because a cardinal number is like a regular number, like people like 87.3 or something. So cardinal right. numbers you could do operations on it makes sense to say what's 10% of that. Whereas yeah. ordinal numbers are things like first, second, third, yes. 87th. So it doesn't make sense to say what's 10% of second. Right. It's it's not right. point tooth. You know, yeah, you know yeah, that, yeah. that's not yeah, how it yeah, works. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, it doesn't yeah. make any sense, right? right? So, or you wouldn't say what's third plus fourth that doesn't yeah. equal seventh. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> so um, so you can't do operations on ordinal things. And so, like I say, in economics, they they purged it of the cardinality because they realized we can do it. And, and Mises thought that wasn't just like an, an elegant trick. It wasn't just like Occam's razor or something. It was just like, hey, get rid of what we don't need. Right. He thought. That makes sense because ultimately, and you can, you know, if we're grounding it on action. What do you do yes. in action? Is you choose one thing and set aside the alternative. Yes. So in action, you're illustrating. You know, I prefer A to B. All we can really say is, you pref- you know, A gave you more utility than B, or right. you you preferred A to B by the choice. Yes. It doesn't. You couldn't say you preferred A eighty seven percent more than B because mm-hmm. all you're doing is choosing one versus the other. So since all action is just choice a binary thing mm-hmm. between the thing you chose and then the next best alternative. He's that's why he thought, yes, that, that preference 
you know, by its very nature is a, is an ordinal ranking of alternatives. Yeah. That's so interesting. And it is very different, just a different way of thinking. And it's amazing how, I mean, how much work must have gone into that? Because <laughs> like, it, it seems like you would just apply that sort of materialist, scientific, objectifiable viewpoint to things where you have mm. these units of utils or whatever you may describe, but to realize that you you don't need that because it's not relevant. I don't. It, that just blows my mind. I think is very interesting. Tell me. So I think about this too. You have the inequality of exchange driving exchange. So you mm-hmm. think what I'm giving you is more valuable and vice versa. So we both perceive like we're gaining value in the trade. That's what's driving mm-hmm. all exchange. But then the th- a neutral third party observing that exchange would equate the two effectively, right? They'd say they have the same market price if they both cleared mm-hmm. at that price. So is that at the heart of value creation? Because we're both receiving more perceived value. And then the third party is where price is trying to map to value. I think Mises may call this an appraisal versus evaluation. Is that correct thinking? Um, yes, you're, you're right. This does get really tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, yes, what you can say is every voluntary exchange um, makes the participants better off in their own mind, mm-hmm. it, at least ex ante. And so that's just a fancy mm-hmm. term meaning like ahead of time going into it. Like, so ex right. post, they might regret it, yes. but if it's, if it truly is voluntary, then, you know, the reason they agreed to it was because they thought that would make them better off. And, right. and also too, I should stress, this is the, a very broad notion of better off. Like you might give up the candy bar for some spinach even though in a sense, mm-hmm. oh, I like the candy bar better, but I was mm-hmm. like, well, no, there must be a sense in which you really did prefer the spinach because otherwise, why did you make the trade? Right, you know right, I mean? right. So it's, you know, it, it can be your, you know, your higher self or whatever, however you want to talk about it. But yeah. ultimately, if it, if it is voluntary and you, you know, you agree to the exchange, it must be because you prefer what you're receiving to what you gave up. Yeah. So yes, there is a sense in which, um, you know, you, do you want to call that value creation? I'm okay using that that terminology if you want, because it means you transform the items in your possession into ones you value more. Right. So, you know, if if value creation means anything, then that would be an example of it. I'll put it that way. Um, And then, but you're right. It is, it does get tricky because then when you say, well, where does do market prices come from and how do we give ascribe objective market values to things or, or measure wealth? Yeah then yeah, you use exchanges to come up with just like to say, well, what's the, what's the market cap of this company? You say, well, what's the latest stock price? And what you really mean is the last time someone traded dollars or or whatever currency you're using for a share of this corporate stock, what was the price per share? And then that's what we're going to use to then multiply and say, okay, so that's what we mean by the market cap. So yes, you are using voluntary trades, even though, like we say, both sides of that trade had an unequal valuations. That's why they did the trade. Right. You're not just going to go on trading for things that you think are of equal value because then what's the point of doing that? You'd never trade. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so that, but there is a sense in which you say, Oh, the, the, because someone valued the corporate stock, the share more than the $50. And because the seller valued the $50 more than the corporate stock. Now we're going to say that stock is 50 worth $50. Right. Right. And so, but again, it's, you got to just, we got to know what do we mean by that? And it doesn't actually mean the utility of $50 
or the, you know, the utility you get from $50 is the same as the utility you get from the corporate stock. That's actually not what it means. Right. That people keep buying and selling and adjusting their holdings of cash and corporates that companies shared stock yeah. until there is no more gain. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you keep buying shares. Uh, you know, if, if you get more utility from the next share of that corporate stock at $50, you would keep buying more and more. And then at some yes. point you stop. So actually it explains why everyone doesn't just own, you know, have all their wealth consisting of one asset. Right. Right. So th- th- this, th- the idea of making decisions on the margin, right. Know, this actually, you know, this new approach explains stuff like that. Although you know, or you go into the grocery store and you see hot dogs are, you know, $2 a pack. Say, oh, that's a good deal. You don't go sell your house to buy as many, <laughs> right? At some right. point you stop because when you say that's a good, what you mean is the first or the second pack of hot dogs I get is more valuable to me than the tenth dollar bill or the eighth dollar bill right. at some point on the margin. No, another pack of hot dogs is not worth more to me than the $2 I would have to give up. Yes. yes, so, yes. Is that, so does that get us into the marginal utility? Um, Revol- was it a revolution where they, I mean, yeah. Or have we come back to this ordinal versus cardinal thing or, or are those unrelated? They are, they are related. And so, yes, what I just said is using marginal utility. That that's Got the it. point that, so that was the revolution. They call it the marginal revolution. Okay. So marginal. it's actually, I, I personally call it the subjective marginal revolution because I mm. think it's the objective subjective is, is an important part of what actually changed. Yes. To to say, oh no, it's it's in people's minds. It's not the intrinsic features of the object. Yeah. The value resides in your mind, not in the in the object. But right, they, they it's actually called. It went down in history as the marginal revolution for what I just said. That they a different example. You might have heard the so-called water diamond paradox. Uh, and so okay. the idea this is, is they knew they knew that goods somehow derived their market value from their ability to satisfy human wants, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they knew you know, human beings had to have something to do with what, why things, certain things were valuable in the marketplace, but there appeared to be a conundrum. Water is essential for life. So how come water, you know, how come a, a gallon of water or a kilogram or whatever of water doesn't have a much higher price than a kilogram of diamonds? Mm-hmm. Because diamonds are pretty to look at, but I mean, you don't you could yeah. take them or leave them. It's not going to, but whereas if the water's gone, then we're all dead. Yeah. So you, you would think if, if the value of the market value of commodities is somehow related to their ability to help humans or to do things humans want, yeah. that water should be really expensive and, and diamonds shouldn't be, but yet it's the opposite. And the solution there is thinking in the mar- in terms of the margin, that because in most settings, we have more water than we need to satisfy most of our urgent desires, on the margin, that last gallon of water really isn't very valuable. You take one right. gallon of water away, doesn't affect my life. Right. Whereas you give me an extra gallon of diamonds, that really changes my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So that's why I would pay a lot more for a gallon of diamonds than a gallon of water. In most settings, if you're starving or dying of thirst in the desert, yeah. it, it would flip. You know, you don't right. care about a diamond. You see, you know, a bucket of water, you're you're going to be excited. So, so that's the the marginal uh, revolution. And so then, yeah, in terms of the ordinal cardinal. It's it's related in the sense that the way we explain that now we we start with just ordinal rank preference yes. rankings to explain you know how it is that the first unit is really valued the second unit not as much and you know the success of units so that's why if really what you're talking about is the ten thousandth unit of water right. on the margin it's not very valuable so it's 
you're using an ordinal framework to talk about that, but you could believe in cardinal utility and also do the marginal approach. And that, yeah. historically, that, that is what they did. Like I said, the Menger and Babavark, when they were first fleshing this stuff out, they they did have examples where they were thinking in terms of utils and, and yeah. people having assigning numbers to say, oh, that apple, that seventh apple gives me 87 units of happiness or something. Right, right. That's interesting. Yeah, so there, um, it's like the more sophisticated the market economy, or I guess you could say the deeper the division of labor, the more likely we are to make these things that are very fundamental abundant because there's a lot of demand. Well, let's see. I was just saying that water clearly is something very essential for human life. We will produce a lot of it because there's a lot of demand for it to the best of our ability. And then the, the residual of that economic process tends to flow into uh, lower utility things like diamonds or gold or whatever. But if you then took that same person and put them on a desert island, the value of diamonds and gold would just collapse to its utility value in a way. So uh, I, what I was trying to get out there is it seems like almost money or store of value assets, it is this excess productivity we're creating through the division of labor. So the more deeply we divide it, the more of that um, claim on productivity, I don't know if productivity is the right term here, uh, that residual economic uh, residual economization is then put into other assets that store it better, which would be like a gold or diamond, something like that. Is that, um, am I thinking along correct lines there? Um, I mean, I think I agree with, with what you said. I've never thought of it in those terms before. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly true that humans would first, you know, direct their productive efforts to satisfying the most urgent needs. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, water, food, things mm-hmm. like that. And then once those are satisfied, then they would, you know, direct them to other ones. And it's also true that as the economy develops and things get more mature, there becomes a role for a medium of exchange and then certain goods have better properties or are more suited to that. And that those aren't necessarily the same things that would make, make it like, you know, uh, something essential for life. Mm-hmm. And that, um, yeah, the, the way you would explain like, why is it that gold and silver historically were the commodity monies of choice and not cattle or water, even though you might think, Oh, but everybody needs to eat and everybody needs to drink water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just as you say, because of the scarcity element, that's, that's one of the main di- differentiators. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's uh, it feels like there that so what is the right term here? It's it's the division of labor is creating more excess. I want to say economic energy or productivity, and that, or maybe you could even call it a monetary premium in a way, where the val- the excess value being created through economization it needs to be stored somewhere, and it typically gets stored in money. Uh, on a free market, I'm not, not talking about fiat currency. Is that what is that term for the economic energy or or productivity? Um, it's I'm trying to think. So I actually don't know in terms of 
Austrian, the Austrian school, if they have a, a, a term for the, here's, here's the difficulty because it's, there's really not a hard and fast or sharp distinction between like, Oh, the, you know, producing for like the basic needs. And then once mm-hmm. those are satisfied, switching up, you know, it's more of a gradation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and in certain settings, you know, like some re- religious monk or something might prefer to, you know, Oh, I, I want to look at this. I want to see this Bible completed and just read it one last time before I die of hunger. Mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so like, yeah. if he had the choice. He would spend his last money on getting that last but the Bible to read before he expires yes. uh, and passes out. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, you know, when you have subjective value and just try to explain human action, you you can't come up with a lot of rules about this is how people behave or this is how or I should say this is how people act yeah. because they could, you know, they're pretty unpredictable. They can do all kinds of stuff. So, um, so th- there's that element involves, um, so, so again, certainly. I'm trying to think. Uh, th- there's other like this uh, Italian economist Piero Schraffa. You know, he had a thing where it. I'm. Tr- I mean, he wrote in Italian. I'm trying to think of what the the translation would be, but but something like yeah, like excess production or surplus production. So mm-hmm. Certainly, in, in the Marxist framework, there's like a surplus value that that's right. where that's the source of profit in the capitalist system, according to Marx, is that the workers produce more than they need for their bare sustenance. And so that's right. where this excess comes from, the same thing with the Like that's how a slave economy works. Right. right. If the slaves could only pick enough food and whatever to just replace their clothes as they get worn out and to maintain themselves physically, there'd be no point to owning slaves. Right. You right. need it that they're they can produce more than they need themselves. Um, and like I say, different frameworks have different terms. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I can't, I don't think the Austrians do. And I think partly it's because they're so subjective. That yeah. say there's no hard and fast distinction between like what do you need versus you right, know, what's, right. what's extra. Maybe this is related to the emergence of money then on the free market. And I guess uh, this gets into some of Minger's work. I think he wrote mm-hmm. on the origins of money. So then we're initially producing commodities that have utility to us. But as we begin to trade with one another as a means of increasing our economic efficiency to the division of labor, certain goods start to develop a marketability premium, which is independent of their utility to us. And then whatever develops the greatest marketability premium is in money. Uh, is, is, is that correct? And it may be then the things you're holding that have the marketability premium is kind of like the, uh, the storehold of that excess economic energy or whatever term that I don't have. <laughs> sure. So yeah, I agree with everything up to that last one. And then I'll, the last one, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about, you know, just to be careful with that concept. So yeah, you're right. Menger, he, in addition to, you know, founding the Austrian school, he's also, um, he didn't invent this idea. Like you can see in Adam Smith. So Adam mm-hmm. Smith's wealth of nations, 1776, Menger's uh, book is 1871, just for mm-hmm. people who have the timeline. Um, but yeah, Menger later wrote, I think it was like in an encyclopedia of economics, the entry on the origin of money, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's not just Austrians, you know, liking him because he's their guy, but mm-hmm. he really was given this task in terms of the history of economic thought. So the way he explained it is, he said, first of all, it's 
people tend to think that if there's some great social innovation that some wise ruler or priest or somebody must have invented it and had the idea. But he said, actually, money is so weird when you think about it that, you know, we're going to, you know, if if, if people were just doing direct exchange or or barter, Mm -hmm. that if somebody said, hey, I know, instead of directly trading things that you want yourself, why don't you sell the things to others in exchange for something that you actually don't want? But don't worry because everyone else is going to do that too. If we can all agree to do this, mm-hmm. then you can go get the things you want because they'll give you that, that thing and you give them the thing that nobody wants. Like, like these shells. Let's use these shells and we'll call it money. People would think you were nuts. That sounds like mm-hmm. the stupidest thing ever, right? Like, why would we do that? Yeah. And so, because it sounds like it won't work too. Like, you know, well, yeah. what if I don't trust other people are going to do it? Then I'm going to be right. the sucker with these shells and no one's going to want them, right? And so, um, and people in the crypto space actually can be like, yeah, I, you know, some of these new coins, I know what you're talking about, right? But that's, <laughs> it's kind of a chicken and egg problem where if we could all agree to do it, it would be great. But if, if I'm the only one who does it, then it's not going to work well. Yeah. So Menger was saying it's, that's probably not how money originated, right? And so we have to explain the emergence of money in a, as like a spontaneous order, like a step-by-step thing that nobody set out to invent it. It just kind of happened naturally as it yes. were. But clearly it has to do with human action, yes. right? It's not like looking at trees and say, nobody invented a tree. Like money right. clearly is a human creation, yes. but yet he was pointing. So anyway, so the way he described it is like you said, imagine your original you know, barter economy, certain goods would be more marketable. Like, like eggs has a, have a wider market than telescopes. Yeah. You know, more people, if you go to market with eggs, you're more likely to find somebody who has what you need than if you go to market with a telescope. Right. And so that's why if you did happen to have a telescope and you saw someone with eggs who wanted a telescope, even if you were trying to go get leather boots, you would probably make that trade because you know the chance of me finding someone with leather boots who wants eggs is higher than finding someone who has leather boots and wants a telescope. So Mm -hmm, I'm going to unload this telescope for eggs because the eggs are more marketable or they're more Mm -hmm. liquid. Mm-hmm. And then, so you see the things that were initially more marketable, their marketability gets enhanced because of that second order effect where people mm-hmm. accept that just because they know this is more marketable, you know, they don't want it themselves. It's like, um, there's a famous example in a POW camp in World War II, cigarettes became the currency. Mm-hmm. So even non-smokers would give up, you know, if you had an extra ration of ham and you didn't like it. You would yeah. sell it for some cigarettes, even if you weren't a smoker, right? Because there were enough smokers who really wanted cigarettes that you could get whatever you yes. needed if you had cigarettes, yeah. right? So that was that was Menger's insight, um, and that's where that's where money came from. But yeah, once one or two commodities were accepted, you know, that process would snowball, and then yes. once a few commodities were just accepted by just about everybody, that's what money is, right? Um, so then. The, my, my only concern with what you were saying about like the the energy in the system or something getting pumped is again that it, it almost sounds like you know there's physical things going into mm-hmm. the objects and so I would just again caution that yeah everything's ultimately in in our minds and you know what something is money because of how what we're doing with it and it has value because of what our minds are ascribing to it right 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 yes and, you know it's it's value could disappear tomorrow. It's expectation based, not not actual energy going into a battery that you can right, right. spend. Yes, no, that's yeah, fair fair criticism there. Uh, I it's funny you give that example of the POW camp. I I grew up playing this massive online multiplayer game called Diablo Two, mm-hmm. and it had a little 
it's like a live Dungeons and Dragons type game, but it also had trade channels where you'd go and trade these items with other players. And it had its own emergent currency. There was no currency. There was currency in the game, but it was so the supply was so large that it didn't have a lot of value to the items. So these little rings called Stone of Jordan rings became the de facto currency in the game. And just mm-hmm. no one set out to do that. The game designer didn't do it. No individual player did. It just happened. So I think it's it makes all the sense in the world that if you have a market economy, something's just going to become the most marketable good. And that would clearly be preferred by all market actors to satisfy their aims. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's great. And I had seen some stuff I was like 10 years ago, but yeah, some economists had really started studying those, you know, what is it like MM? I forget uh, the, the, the letters, yeah. are, the massive multiplayer online yes. role playing games or whatever, MMRPG or something. Yeah. And um, because of the economic implications of it, that yeah, it was almost like this almost perfect simulated environment where yeah. we can try all sorts of stuff, you know, at low cost. And in my understanding is, yeah, some of the world, I don't know if it was Diablo, but it was, there was something where it was like, because like the way it originally worked was if you went out and killed monsters, like they would have gold coins on them. Yeah. But then some people were just like paying kids in India to play their game for them while they slept yeah, and yeah. went to work. To and then farm, so there was like, yeah. a, like inflation. Yeah. And so like pri- the, the stores, like the price of the swords and stuff quoted in gold pieces just kept going up and up and up. And so finally they had to change the settings that, you know, there couldn't be this constant influx yes. of new coins yes. from, from, you know, computer generated monsters. So anyway, there was a lot of neat stuff like that where economists who weren't playing these games were like, you know, this is kind of like a cool laboratory. Let's start studying this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw I went through a number of those episodes too, where um, people figured out how to duplicate items and whatnot. So the yeah, we saw inflation happen in real time. It was it was interesting, interesting to learn. Um, I had no idea I was learning economics at the time. I was just a kid, but just to mm-hmm. reflect on it, uh, it's funny. So this is kind of rewinding a bit back back to Mises' view on human action. So he makes this distinction between a priori and a posteriori, if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. that career correctly. Um, and maybe this is also related to apodictic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word. I think that's just another way of saying a priori. Could you describe the, the difference between those for the audience? Um, Cause I think this is very critical to understanding, not just economics, but um really epistemology and philosophy more generally. Right. So um, a priori is um, things you can know. The the mnemonic I use is just like the word prior is kind of embedded in there. Mm -hmm. And so it's, yeah, like things you can know just by thinking through. Like you don't have to go look out in the world to see whether they're Mm -hmm. true or not. Whereas a posteriori, Again, the mnemonic I use is like there's posts in there, like after the fact. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, a posteriori, you have to go observe the world to see, to, to learn about this. Yeah. So, um, the, and so, the, and you're right, in epistemology, the study of, you know, knowledge, how do we come to know things? These are terms like that, um, that Kant used a lot. And then I think that's where, you know, Mises picked this up from. Mm. And there's the, the, the other two are um, analytic and synthetic. And Mm -hmm. so those are like, so it's, there's like four quadrants, you know, you have synthetic a priori, um, analytic a priori, a posteriori, synthetic a posteriori and analytic a posteriori. And then, Mm. and people argue about 
whether like synthetic a priori is an empty set or not. Okay. So, mm. um, what, so what Mises was arguing is that economic science, like the laws of economics or principles of economics are a priori. And he's mm. saying, those are things we can know just through introspection, just thinking about, you don't need to go test it just like geometry is right? You know, mm. going back to that earlier discussion we had that the way you establish geometric theorems is you just state the axioms, you come up with a deduction, you go through the proof. If you think it's wrong, you have to show me what step in the, in the chain of reasoning that I make you know, a, a, a deduction that actually wasn't valid. Mm-hmm. It's not that you go out in the world and test this theory because it, that, that's misunderstanding what you just did. Right. Um, and s- whereas to say, you know, is Einstein's theory of general relativity, is that true or not? You can't just use introspection you you have to go test and see like well what happens to mercury in its orbit does it actually do what einstein said or does it do what newton said you know that kind right, of stuff right, right. and so um so that's so physics would be an a posteriori science whereas mises would say economics is a priori and then that term apodictic just means like beyond dispute uh so okay. so yes if something is a priori and you agree with the deduction then the result is apodictic Beyond dispute. So that's gotcha. why, yeah. So that's why Mises, you know, uses that term sometimes. Gotcha. One of the things I, I was again rereading a little bit of human action recently, and he makes this point that I think it's that a priori uh, assertions are irrational, actually, versus anything a posteriori is rational. Um, and maybe this is the axioms themselves are irrational. And I think he means by this that you can't, perhaps what you're saying right here is you can't rationally go out and test it necessarily. It's just deduced. Um, whereas everything that is de- that is deduced can then be tested in, in the real world. So therefore it's rational. Is that, have I muddied terms there or is, is it? Okay, so there... And this is how you know that up till now when I've been saying, yep, that's right, that I wasn't just coddling you. Because here I'm going to say, that doesn't sound right to me. Like, okay. I'm not sure what what I, what could be. I mean, um, what you might have in mind is I think he does say something like, you know, the ultimate. Ultimate givens, um, I think. Right. The ultimate givens are not things subject to, to testing. Yes. So I, I don't think he would say they're irrational because that means like they violate reason. I think he might just say they're a, maybe he said they're irrational or mm, they're, okay. it could be something like, so like I said, I'm, I don't remember what passage you have in mind, but mm. yes, I think I could imagine non-rational. So that would be okay, irrational, yeah, you could, like you're right. describing. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So here, because yeah, irrational you know, has the, the the connotation of the it's mm-hmm. it's against reason, and he certainly thinks you know a priori truth is 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 reasonable is is consistent with reason. Yes, but but you're right. He he um you know could say the ultimate givens are things that we just accept, and you know like people act. And yes, by the way, on that um, Israel Kersner one time told me so. Kersner had studied under Mises at NYU, and then I went to NYU when Kersner was still there. And he mentioned to me in passing that he once asked Mises, how do we know that people act? And that Mises said through observation. So, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. So take what you will from that. You know what I mean? Like it's an interesting because yeah. people might've thought he would say, well, because you know, as you're sitting in a closet and realized I'm going to just assume people. And right. no, he, and that kind of circles back to what we were saying, Robert, about you just navigate the world better. If you, 
assume for the sake of argument that there are other minds at work, you know, whether, you know, you could never really know that in a right. fundamental sense, but right. still come on. That's what you do when you're dealing with other people is you assume they have inner thoughts like you do. Yes. So yeah, that's very interesting, but you almost, there is a leap of faith associated with it, right? You have to choose mm-hmm. an axiomatic framing for being and thinking, I guess, even. Um, but that's so interesting. Yeah, you, and, if, and if you encountered someone too, that was like, you know, uh, la, 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 you, know you might yeah. say, oh, they've been brainwashed or they're sleepwalking. And so maybe then you would put more of a, of a box around them and say yes. they're not, you know, acting in a true sense. They're more like, you know, reflexive behavior at the moment or something. So, right. but yeah, in general, in, in our social interactions, of course, we are assuming there's other minds at work and they have goals that might be different from ours. Yes. It's, it's interesting to me though, that there is that fundamental kernel. I'll use the word faith. Um, I think Mises would say all action is speculative, right? Where we can't, Mm -hmm. we can't know what's going to happen. We just have to actually assume, I guess, or take this little leap of faith. I think it's interesting that that underpins or perhaps even is uh, inherent to these axioms on which we build all of these other knowledge structures. Um, may, I don't, for some, my, my intuition there is that somehow the religious text and mythology is alluding to that often, you know, this, you know, the act of faith or whatever, maybe it's not just some benign belief in a deity. It's actually talking about, you know, praxis in some interesting way. Um, it's also in Kung Fu Panda. I just watched <laughs> that the other day where the big thing the turtle gives, he says, you must believe, you know, like that's the important <laughs> that's, thing. That's right. My daughter loves that movie. <laughs> it's a great movie, actually. It is. Um, so let me ask you, there's, all right. There's a punchline in human action that really stuck with me too, towards the end. Mm-hmm. And I'll try to frame it up and I'd love to just hear your thoughts on it. And and correct me anywhere I'm wrong here, as as always. Uh, Mises, I think, makes the general assertion that for a tool to be successful in the marketplace, it just needs to be useful, basically. Like, you know, if a hammer drives a nail better than every other hammer, then all things considered over the long run, it will pretty much proliferate and succeed. People will make use of it. But he, he makes this distinction that the ideologies under which we organize ourselves are different and that it's not just the most useful ideology that wins out necessarily, that there is this component of public opinion that we actually have to win. It has to, there have to be advocates for a certain ideology uh, that have to go into the forum of, of public opinion and win support for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I believe he's making the case, you know, we, kind of making a case for education that you really needed to educate people about the principles of capitalism such that we did not try to adopt the principles of socialism. And again, his books written in, I think you said 1949. So um, it was prescient. I think in a lot of ways, we didn't completely know the, the dire uh, implications of socialism at the time. I guess we kind of, kind of in the middle of it. Um, and that just left a mark on me. It's like, okay, so I, I felt almost this 
sacred duty of some kind. It's like, if you're someone that can understand what this guy is saying and the, the implications of a market economy versus a socialized economy, which is basically slavery. I mean, I guess to sum it up, um, that you have the, I felt, I feel, felt and feel this impulsion to now go out and share and educate to the best of my ability others so that they can, so you can win in the court of public opinion to get people, hopefully push history in the right direction um, so that we organize ourselves in a way that's uh, a net benefit for humanity, let's say. That was a bit of a mouthful, right. but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, let me, if you, if you forgive me, let me just read this. Uh, so this is an excerpt. I just Googled a phrase that I knew would, would bring up the quote. So this is coming from near the end of human action in this section you're talking about. Mm. And so, yeah, the context is Mises is explaining like, okay, we just, you know, we just went through 800 and some pages of me teaching you economics. And I've shown you how civilization itself rests on society, you know, the division of labor, which in turn presupposes a basic respect for property rights and the use of money, you know, having ownership and the means of production, people need to own factories, they need to own farmland, the government can't take control. This, you know, I've shown you what would happen if, if we do go down that path. And you're right, he just like, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's the the physicists can know quantum physics and there's some weird counterintuitive, almost crazy stuff in quantum theory. And if the, if the public thinks it's nutty, it doesn't matter because the computers that use it will work. Mm -hmm. You know, like in other words, the scientists who know quantum theory and then build things accordingly, their products are better. And like you say, the customer doesn't need to know how it works. They just need to know this computer works better than, you know, something right. else. Whereas with economics, you're right, if the public doesn't understand it well enough, and they fall for politicians or others, you know, strong men or whatever who rise mm -hmm. to power, making mm -hmm. promises that aren't based on sound economics, it could be disaster. So then Mises, let me just read this thing. Everyone carries a part of society on his shoulders. No one is relieved of his share of responsibility by others. And no one can find a safe way out for himself if society is sweeping toward destruction. Therefore, everyone in his own interest must thrust himself vigorously in the intellectual battle None can stand aside with unconcern. The interest of everyone hangs in the result. Whether he chooses or not, every man is drawn into the great historical struggle, the decisive battle into which our epoch has plunged us. So, you know, you don't see that in most micro textbooks. <laughs> so it is, wow. you know, so that, that's what we're saying. It's that you can see why is it that the Mises, you know, why do I work for a thing called the, the Mises Institute? You know, why yeah. did somebody name something after this? Because yeah, he like we said in the beginning, his his book is difficult. It's Germanic. It's long sentences and what. But he does get you fired up when he writes stuff like that. Like he's a serious guy, and he's saying this. You know, this is why you need to know this, and you need to tell other people about this because civilization hangs in the balance. Yes. Wow. No, that I got chills from reading that again. That's probably the very passage that stuck with me. Um, I, I do you. Is I take it Mises has been a big influence on your life. I mean, what what is the oh, yeah. the impact you seek to create through your work? What? Um, so yeah, the to answer the first one, I mean, second to the Bible, which I sort of take for granted because I you know I, I grew up you know going to Catholic school and so I, I'm calling myself Christian now, but that was so such there that 
you know, that probably influenced it more. But in ter- other than that, in secular works, yes, Mises' human action influenced my worldview more than any other book by far. Because um, it's, it, it's not just stuff like, oh, how does free trade work or, you know, right. what causes the business cycle, even though that's all in there. But like he, you know, he's, he says things like all governments rest on the consent of the governed. Like there's in the long yes. run, there can't be an unpopular government, even dictators rest on public opinion. That's why they control the schools and the media because yes. they know if the public turns on me, then the military turns on me and I'm done. Yes. Right. So yes. it's in the most totalitarian societies. They're actually the most fragile and they control the information the most. It's not just who has more guns. Yes. They really need to control information. Right. So I'm just saying the way I look at the world, like came from Mises more than any other person. Um, and, and so, yeah, what I'm, trying to do is educate people because it's when you learn how the world works, you realize all the excuses and justifications given for violence fall away. Mm. And so like the things that are, you know, what does the cause of the great injustices of our time or, you know, anybody's time, Mm. like a lot of that, the reason the public goes along with it is because they have been fooled by faulty doctrines. And so right. if you can correct those doctrines that saps public support for these evil things that are happening, and that would tend to minimize them. So, yeah. you know, I'm focusing largely up till now on economics because that's my area of training and I can do the most there, but you yeah. know, this is a, it's a broader um, issue. Yeah. Wow. No, that's, that's very, very interesting. And um, seems like the battle's really heating up. I mean, there's more bullshit than ever. Um, I like, I like to think it's, I'm taking somewhat of an optimistic, I hope not naive view that we're this digital age is going to be really transformative that, you know, this type of engagement, we have more and more decentralized Mm -hmm. media, you know, I hope that is an accelerant to the market process of ideas. If you want to say the liquidity of ideas has never been higher. Mm -hmm. And so that would help us to hopefully dispel a lot of these false doctrines on which current political power structures are premised. Um, But the the optimistic and hopefully not naive view I'm taking is that it's kind of darkest before dawn. So maybe Mm -hmm. we're going into that part of history where a lot of these institutions are starting to show their age and, and whatnot. Um, where do you think we are in terms of historical development, economic science? Do you, I, I haven't asked your views on Bitcoin. I don't know if you even think that's a, a, a big key piece to this or not. Um, just your general macro historical account of where we are and where you think we're headed. Okay, sure. Um, so I I heard Jim Rogers say this, the you know the investor. I don't know if he made this up or if he grabbed it from somebody else, but I definitely agree with it. He said that the 19th century was the British century, the 20th was the American, and the 21st is going to be the Chinese century. Mm. And I think that's true. And not that that's a good thing. I'm just but I'm just saying that to mm. me that's what's going to happen. Um, I don't think all of the landmass that's now called the United States is going to be part of the United States. Um, let's say 20 years from now. I mean, it, wow. I don't, uh, 
So I, in other words, I think some states are going to break away. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really alarmed by U.S. the U.S. political culture right now. I'm just seeing like people hate each other's guts to a degree that I would not have thought possible ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, some of it you can say, oh, well, it's just that social media is letting you see what was always there. And I think there is, that's partly true, but I also think it's no, it, things really are inflamed right now that there are mm-hmm. people who would not bat an eye to see lots of other Americans die that that wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, like they, you know, they, they, there were not that many people who really just hate segments of, you know, the country. And, and now I'm, I'm just seeing that more and more. Uh, so but like you say, I, I am also, I, I do think, you know, once we get through this coming calamity, it, it will, you know, there will be a, a, a new age, not new age, like, you know, in terms of new age <laughs> philosophy or whatever, but, um, you know, it, it's with technology, people going to, going into space, you know, that's going to keep developing. I do, um, I do think, you know, the, the crypto will revolutionize finance, you know, whether it's going to be Bitcoin per se, or whether people will just look fondly back and say that was, you know, the pioneer. And then we Mm -hmm. did so much more with it, you know, that that's, I'm not as sure about, Mm -hmm. but yes, like blockchain technology in general, I think that's going to be hundreds of years from now, people are going to say, yeah, the, the, when humans discovered how to use blockchains, that was a major innovation. Mm. Interesting. Do you think the Oh, sorry, and just a, you're right. This the decentralization of information uh I was more optimistic. I th- I th- I I thought there was um I, I can't remember the title. I had something on my YouTube channel called something like Liberty Lovers Have 2 Years or something goofy like where I gave myself a real short time frame because I thought people are connecting now it's sort of like the neurons in a human brain mm-hmm. like it's just all the interconnections and the people are now able to do all these things. And so like the, the processing power of this system is yeah. just, you know, mind blowing and that how can, you know, the, the small elite control this mass of humanity when they're able to do all this stuff and end runs around major media. And that's still true, but I'm kind of amazed that the willingness of the public just to sit there and let the elites sort of take control of most of the flow of information. Yeah. You know, to, in other words, like sort of negating a large portion of the the ostensible benefits or the the promise of what could have been from a free internet. Yeah. Um, so it's as always with this stuff, and it's I realized probably when they invented the printing press, you know, certain advocates of human liberty thought game over, we win. Now that we can <laughs> crank out books, you know, who could possibly stop us? Yeah. And you know that's not what happened. Right. Yeah. That, that's um. I want to speak to that, but I wanted to first ask you a question about something you said earlier, um, the political polarization in the world. Mm. Do you think that's related to fiat currency or manipulation of the money supply in any way? Well, I mean, certainly in the indirect way that modern states are vastly uh, empowered by having recourse to a fiat printing press, mm-hmm. you know, they can wage war and they can do all sorts of stuff that they wouldn't be able to do if they, if there was a hard money regime 
mm-hmm. and they had to either directly tax or borrow from their you know from the markets mm-hmm. in an honest fashion without having a central bank waiting in the wings to monetize the debt mm-hmm. yeah the, i mean the, the various governments of the world couldn't do all the sorts of things they've been doing that they can get away with with fiat central banking and so to that extent yes that a lot of the the current thing that's happening like you could say oh well no it's because of the higher education and all these marxists on campus right but why is higher education such a big thing and how could it be that people right. who aren't teaching young people anything useful except to hate everybody yeah how can that be a viable why are people paying fifty thousand dollars in tuition for their kids to learn awful false things that yeah. just fill them with hate well the government is involved here i'm speaking in the u.s context i'm sure you know yeah. you tweak the details it's largely true in other western nations but so yeah if, if you had if we had been on a hard money regime the whole time or hard money standard then that wouldn't have been as bad yeah yeah there's this uh i forget who said it it's an austrian uh the the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked so i have this i guess it's kind of a theory um that we've just rotted ourselves basically you know ever Mm -hmm. since going off the gold standard 1971 that it's caused the institutional rot we're seeing uh the moral decay you know the fiat culture fiat art fiat relationships Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. and i'm not trying to isolate it as the, the sole cause but i do think it it's a large contributor um yeah yeah so i mean there there's definitely that it's part of it what i'm not so sure about is 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 that is that the way to think of it that oh it was the decision to abandon sound money that mm-hmm. then led to all these things or is it that oh like you know the the cultural marxists with you know bringing in postmodernism and this and that mm-hmm. and blowing up the idea of absolute truth right is that the you know the higher level thing and then that seeped into everything including money you know right, so it's right. possible that's right, right, right. i see what you're saying yeah yeah, I've kind of viewed that anchor to gold as kind of, uh, it's a mooring of society, mm-hmm. right? Kept the state mm-hmm. honest, which then kind of keeps people more honest, et cetera, et cetera. And then once right, you right. remove that, you have that unmooring, that gives you much more of that postmodern relativistic dynamic where nothing mm-hmm. means anything, everything's right, relative right. to everything. There's no anchor. Right. Can I tell um, you a funny anecdote? So yeah. the, guys like paul krugman when people were arguing about um you know inflation like you know with after the 2008 2009 you know crisis and the, you know the fed pumps and all the money with various rounds of qe and the people on the right are freaking out and worrying about zimbabwe and stuff and krugman's mocking them all of course and and he would often bring up apparently when great britain in the early 30s i think it was 31 but i might be off there in the early 30s great britain went off the gold standard mm-hmm. you know so they had done it the major powers all did it in world war one but then they went back on gold and great britain you know infamously went to the pre-war parody and that caused deflation and everything mm-hmm. and so but then they threw in the towel in the early 30s and just said no we're going off gold and apparently the the what was he the uh the head of the exchequer i don't know how to say that word. Oh, British, okay. you know, e-x-c-h you know, yeah. exchequer um, or something like that yeah apparently when they made that decision he said this is the end of western civilization huh 
And so the Keynesians all mock that guy. And my point is, he said in the early 1930s in Europe, this is the end of Western civilization. What would have had to happen for him to be right? Yeah. You see right. what I mean? So really, yeah. they're just like, oh, well, no, you know, everything else would have happened anyway. And this, But I'm saying right. they're just acting like it's self-evident that this guy's an idiot because, oh, you believe in your hard money and you got to you know, be, <laughs> be honest banker. And it was like, what the thirties and forties were pretty bad. Like that yeah. arguably was the end of Western civilization. Yeah. So, Wow. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Well, we, I, I think it's pretty apparent that the scale scope and duration of world war two would not have been possible without fiat currency printing press. Um, even, even the defenders of fiat money, say that, right? Like that's actually yeah. one of the number one reasons they'll give is to say, well, what if there's a national emergency? We need to leave gold, you know, to defend the country, you know, so they'll admit yeah. that the gold standard prevents governments from waging, you know, massive yeah. prolonged war. Yeah. And this is where, I, again, I think Bitcoiners, I see this, I think I see Bitcoin as a digital disruptor to gold. So I hope to see it succeed in a way that reinstills the discipline that gold used to exert on government mm -hmm. in a way that can't be monopolized or, or coerced. Um, and a lot of this has to do with really the technological advantages of Bitcoin. You don't need to centralize its custody to scale it for a globe, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, we needed gold did not scale well for a globalizing society. That was kind of the purpose of central banking and in warehousing more generally. We needed to abstract it into a currency so we could transact more easily. Um, Bitcoin doesn't suffer from those disadvantages. And then it it also holds its value across time, you know, in theory. I know it's the verdict's still out, but the fixed supply gives it very optimal store value properties. Um, and to the the point you made earlier about the internet, I agree with you. The internet, the original promise of it has been somewhat abandoned. You know, mm -hmm. we have given into this kind of platform application layer censorship and control, which the, you know, quote unquote elites have kind of gotten their hands into to become the new, um, the new media, essentially what's being controlled and manipulated. But another interesting thing about Bitcoin this is very, very early is that you can build media tools on top of it that are as censorship resistant as Bitcoin itself. So for instance, this podcast goes up on a platform. This is just one of many. Uh, it's just one I'm familiar with. It's called Sphinx Chat. And it's published there. And it can't be censored. It can't be taken down because it's built on the Lightning Network, which is built on Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. um, my again, my hope there is that Bitcoin offers us this layer for an uncensorable internet. Because I think I don't think we're going to ever be able to realize the you know, the, the dream that Mises laid out for us without unstoppable money and unstoppable speech tools, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah. Hey, I just Robert, to... can I just ask you, because I hadn't heard that it, yep. in the same way that like they can't really take down Bitcoin, that they could knock out any anybody's computers and that would just be a copy of the blockchain. And But there's other copies floating out there. And so that's why you couldn't censor like your podcast that's, that's published there. Is that what you're getting at? That there's no central node to knock out? That's right. Yeah. So the Lightning Network is a transactional layer. It's built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, it's still 
beta, I guess you might say. It's operational. It's moving uh, a lot of funds. But and what what it does is because Bitcoin doesn't move a lot of transactions per second. Mm-hmm. This is like a smart contract layer that trades off some of the trust minimization of final settlement. Like if I settle with you, if I send you a Bitcoin transaction and there's six confirmations on chain, I've basically handed you a gold coin. It's an irreversible transaction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. No, one, no one can censor it or, or whatever. Um, Lightning Network gives up a little bit of that trust minimization because you start to, you're actually trusting the smart contract, right. but it lets you perform in as the network density increases, the upper limit is unlimited, actually, in theory. You could have unlimited transactions per second in Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. unlimited transactions per second, global final settlement. And then one other benefit is you can build other applications on top of it. So you're moving these sats around, which can be piggybacked with messages. So you have this unstoppable media tool. It could be chat, messaging, mm-hmm. you know, podcasting, social media, anything. So... It's early, but there's there's this great hope for Bitcoin to kind kind of reinvigorate the original promise of the internet. Okay, great. Yeah, like I said, I, I had heard of smart contracts and all these other applications and things, but I I actually didn't realize the information transmission was fast enough that a video podcast would be up would be able to be distributed that way. So yeah, um, I I'm. It's only audio that I'm posting now. I don't. Okay, know. it's just the audio. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if they do video yet. But again, these things are all so new. I think Sphinx Chat's mm-hmm. a few months old. Um, Lightning Network's a couple of years old. You know, Bitcoin, twelve years old. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like it is kind of binary, though. We like technology has opened up this spectrum of possibility. And it's either going to be this Orwellian dystopian thing where it's all fully controlled and we're all on social credit scores and central bank digital currency wallets and all that, or there's gonna, you know, there's this possibility that an unmonopolizable money could emerge and really separate money from state in a way that would be much more in line with um, the bright future Mises said was possible. So, so like you, I just, I want to fight for that. You know, I want to, and mm-hmm. I think that the, the battle occurs in the educational domain. So that's what I hope to help keep having great conversations like this to help broaden awareness. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. And and you're right. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing too, because it is right, a lot of this stuff. If people could just see it, you mm-hmm. know, then it would be obvious. You know what I mean? Like, so again, right. with the, with these things and that's, that's the, the problem and the, the people implementing these nefarious schemes from our perspective, that's not how they're selling it. You know, right. it's all about, Oh, we got to protect people from drug dealers and we got to do this. And, you know, yes. and it's, we're just here to ensure financial integrity and things like, you know, so it's, it's amazing to me why, why people keep, why so many people keep believing it when like, look at all the examples of yeah. how these people are not trustworthy, but be that yeah. as it may. There's it's interesting with Austrian economics too, because it almost is once you have a general understanding, it seems a little bit obvious in retrospect. I mean, I I don't know, maybe it's just a biased opinion, but you look at some of this Keynesian stuff and it just doesn't make any sense. But Austrian economics is reasonable, you know, it's like you can think through it and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it's very so it's it's got that quality to it. But it's also, like we've explored in this podcast, very difficult to kind of break the surface of it. Like to really get into that mode of thinking is you have to 
unlearn a lot and sort of shift your perspective uh, in a way that takes a lot of effort. So I don't know. I, I have hope that people could get their heads around it, but um, you know, I think it's going to take time. So just got to keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. Just to amplify what you just said there. Yeah. I would. So after the 2008 crisis, my phone metaphorically was ringing off the hook and people would have me come out like, what the heck just happened? And then you start doing QE and I was going around giving PowerPoint presentations Mm -hmm. to uh, like, like when I say regular people, I don't just mean, you know, Austrians or like college kids who, you know, loves libertarianism or something. Mm -hmm. I mean like regular people in the financial sector or their clients who just wanted an economist to come and just explain what happened with the housing bubble. I don't get Mm -hmm. what's going on. You know, is is the dollar going to crash? And so I would give them a you know crash course in what was Austrian business cycle theory, but I wouldn't call it that. I would just mm. say, you know, here's what happened with interest rates. Look at the housing bubble, blah blah blah. And then you know they started raising rates. That you know, and it was a pretty compelling. And it was common sense, like you know, saying if what got us into this crisis was people living beyond their means, you don't fix that by the Fed creating money out of thin air. Right. to buy government debt so politicians could spend more than they have. Yes. That doesn't make any sense. Yes. And here's why. And I'd go through and show, yeah. you know, and here's the pedigree and Friedrich Hayek won the Nobel prize and that, that, that you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and people would come up after and say things like, you know, I knew something was screwy when I was watching TV <laughs> and they would say how the way to fix this was the government needs to borrow money and it doesn't even matter what they spend it on. Like I knew that couldn't be right, yes. but I'm glad you, you know, or they would say, this is just common sense. Or they would often say, this made so much more sense than the economics I took in college. Yes. You know, things exactly. like that. So you're right. On the one hand, it is like the reason regular people like Austrian economics is it is common sense, but more rigorous. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you say, on the other hand, it is, it, it's tough at first. And it's, yeah. you know, and, it, and also depending, you know, on the person, like it, it's a hard pill to swallow. Like, like if if we're if the like right now if you said to me okay what should they do is that the Fed should stop inflating for sure let interest rates rise to their natural levels did it they said well wouldn't that cause a huge crash and I would say yes because a crash is happening no matter what the right. question is just do you right. want to make it worse or let's yep. get it over with yeah and people yep. don't want to hear that so someone yep. else comes along and says no 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 don't listen to these doom and gloomers we're just going to do a soft landing yeah. and we're watching it we're going to yeah. tweak and blah, 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 blah. But, you know then. People would rather hear that. And certainly the politicians would rather advance, you know, and, and, and hoist up the people saying right. massive government deficits are what we need when the private sector is deleveraging. Right. Yeah. Well, I think Misa said we once you start manipulating the currency, you either get the deflationary bust to reality or the crack up boom. Right. And it appears that central banks and politicians have precedent and incentive to push us towards the crack up boom hyperinflation scenario um yeah i don't know that it's seems like we would see it in the next few decades because the acceleration on you know just usm2 is unbelievably high now i think 40 percent annual increase last year yeah right yeah if you look at um certain and, and the m1 metric is tricky because they they redefined it yes retroactive to may 2020 and so there's a big spike yeah but even with the old definition there was a huge spike in m1 in 2020 like i'm actually so cynical i almost wonder if that's why they did it 
So that when people see the huge spike, they say, oh, no, don't worry about that. That's just because of a redefinition. I was like, no, yeah. actually, half the spike was real. And the other half is, you know, the statistical. Yes. Um, and you're right. The way to, to, to wash that out is just look at M2 because M2 was not affected by the redefinition. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, with all this stuff, and it's the, the difficulty is, like, I, me personally, if you go to my Wikipedia page, you would think I was born and then I lost an inflation bet. Like, that looks like the summary of my life. Because... <laughs> In uh, in like 2010 ish, I was very concerned about QE and some of my colleagues who were you know free market people. One was Brian yeah. Kaplan, an anarcho capitalist. The other guy was David Henderson, who was not an anarchist but a very small government guy yeah. and not a not a Keynesian at all. And I bet that they just thought I was more alarmed about price inflation than was warranted. And so we yeah. had bets on what would happen to CP, and I was wrong. Yeah. And Paul Krugman, you know, was running victory laps on that and just loves <laughs> to talk about, you know, these. So I'm just I'm saying that I I can't sit here and be like, how can these idiots, you know, not know the writing on the wall? Because I right. was thinking it was going to hit sooner. I thought by now it would be obvious, you know, what I mean? yeah. that, that we wouldn't still, you know, gasoline would be a lot more expensive per gallon than it is yeah. right now. And well, so is that just because investors around the world are fools? Or is it because something's wrong with the way you and I are looking at it? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the CPI, we know that's a flawed metric. And then two, this time, I hate to say this time is different. I know those are infamous last words, but the distribution of the money is different. The bank's mm. capitalization is different. Um, and, you know, we we have had inflation. It's just been, I think when this... Well, the, it's been asset inflation. Let's just put it that way. It's like the as the disparity between rich and poor grows, there's more more of the newly created money is going to get stuck at the top in asset prices. It just makes sense that the rich would get richer as a result. So I, I'm not I'm not familiar with your bet scenario, but I just know that that people looking to CPI and saying there's no inflation, I just don't think that's a that's a valid narrative, frankly. Um, oh, well, well, sure. And and also, too, what's funny is, as I'm sure you know, even using the government's own CPI numbers recently, it. they were like the, they were like the yeah. highest in 30 years, depending on yes. you know, whether it's core, PCE, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, so even their own metrics are blown. And I think that's partly why they switched to average inflation targeting last summer yeah. is to give themselves cover. So now they can be above target and say, oh, yeah, but we're just saying on average, you know, yeah. since we we're running cold, now we're going to run hot for a few. But um, but what I mean though is like if we're worried about the dollar collapsing, then you know it's they can do whatever statistical tricks they want. If gasoline's twenty dollars a gallon, mm-hmm. you know, people are gonna know that. That's right. You know what I mean? Or like in exactly. Zimbabwe, the government couldn't have convinced everybody that no, actually there's no inflation <laughs> yeah. given what they what happened. You know what I mean? Yes. So th- yeah. that's that's what I mean. That what I think is coming is gonna be so obvious. It's right. not that statistical sleights of hand are going to be able to yeah. hide it, even though I agree with everything you're saying. That yeah, yeah, when I go to the grocery store now, even if I go to you know the the cheap stores, it's like I'm spending more than a hundred bucks. And a few years ago, I would have spent fifty. And it's right. like, what's going on here? Yes. And the paper towels are thinner, and yes, shrinkflation. And, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I joke with some of my friends that are outside of economics. It's like, well, the good news is we're all going to be billionaires, but the bad <laughs> news is we're going to be broke billionaires. <laughs> right, right. Um, Bob, this has been awesome, man. I really appreciate you talking to me about Austrian econ. It is not an easy subject to crack, but 
as we talked about, I think very important. Um, and we're living through, you know, we're living through the emergence of a new science. So I'm glad there's people like you carrying the torch that that Mises was carried for a long time. Um, and I hope we can, you know, just help shine the way towards a brighter future. So. Well, th- thanks so much for having me, Robert. And again, I'm glad that, you know, you've got your show and you're trying to get the word out as well. And that, you know, Satoshi and the other innovators in the crypto space are doing what they're doing. Cause yeah, this, this could very well be, you know, one of the key innovations that, that helps the, you know, carrying on a torch of Liberty. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, Bob. Thank you. Thank you.